Democrats in Congress look ready to pass new legislation with significant climate change elements that push the country closer to President Biden's goals and deliver jobs. Manufacturing jobs on clean energy construction projects, solar projects, wind projects, clean hydrogen projects, carbon capture projects. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The surprise deal among Senate Democrats coming up. Americans put a lot of trust in food expiration dates, and that leads to a lot of waste. 86% of consumers report that they either always or usually throw food away based on the date. But food dates vary widely by state, so what is the safest thing to do? And the finals are set for the U.S. Open Cup. There's a huge surprise. Lower division Sacramento stunned a major league soccer powerhouse. The first time that's happened in nearly 25 years. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A new report card on the economy is fueling fears the United States is slipping into a recession. There was negative growth in back-to-back quarters. Here's NPR's David Gura. The U.S. economy contracted in April, May, and June as prices rose at their fastest pace in four decades. GDP data show the housing market cooled as the Federal Reserve raised interest rates aggressively. The average rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is almost double what it was a year ago. And amid economic uncertainty, businesses started to retrench, some laying off workers and scaling back plans. Retailers found themselves with a glut of goods. Consecutive quarters of negative growth have preceded past recessions, but President Biden and his advisors argue you can't be in a recession when the labor market is so strong. The economy added 372,000 jobs in June. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Senate Democrats are readying a spending bill that, among other things, aims to tackle health care costs and the effects of climate change. The legislation negotiated by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer changed from prior versions because Manchin said he was not comfortable with certain spending provisions, while the U.S. has record high inflation. But some Democrats, like Alex Padilla of California, say they're pleased that a consensus was reached. It's the biggest uh, action on climate the Senate's done ever, so I'm looking forward to getting it done. However, Republicans argue the bill will make inflation worse. Senators could vote on the bill next week before their August recess. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir has declared a state of emergency and has deployed the National Guard to the eastern part of the state where historic flash flooding hit the region. Karen Zarv, member station WUKY, says the death toll from the flooding stands at at least three. Governor Andy Bashir says Kentucky is experiencing one of the worst, most devastating flooding events in the state's history. Thousands are without power and water. Several residents are missing and others are stranded in their homes, some having to wait for help on their rooftops. There's a lot of people out there who need help who are really scared right now. And we're doing the very best we can to reach each and every one of them. Shelters and state parks have been open to residents that have been displaced from houses. Bashir says the immediate needs will be clean water and cleaning supplies. For NPR News, I'm Karen Czar in Lexington. For the first time since March, President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping spoke today. For more than two hours, she reportedly reasserted China's claims over Taiwan. China's Foreign Affairs Ministry stated, quote, those who play with fire will perish by it. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is considering a trip to Taiwan. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 332 points, or more than 1 percent. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine is recommending blood tests and medical monitoring for people who are likely to have had a high exposure to toxic chemicals known as PFAS. The chemicals have contaminated drinking water supplies in nearly 100 communities in Massachusetts. They're linked to poor fetal growth, high cholesterol, and kidney cancer. WBUR's Barbara Moran has more. The report offers the first comprehensive summary of the links between PFAS levels in the blood and specific health concerns. Laurel Shader, a senior scientist with the Silent Spring Institute in Newton, studies communities exposed to PFAS. She calls the report validating. This report will also be helpful more broadly in the medical community to raise awareness about um, health concerns around PFAS, and I hope that it will make PFAS blood testing more readily available. The state began requiring public water testing for PFAS two years ago. Since then, 93 cities and towns have had one or more test results over the legal limit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Massachusetts state government will spend about 10 percent more this fiscal year compared to last. Today, Governor Charlie Baker signed a $52.7 billion annual budget into law. The package includes increases to spending on schools and child care and unrestricted aid to cities and towns. The newly approved budget also includes some policy provisions, including a law that bans children from being married. Previously, children under 18 could marry with the permission of a judge or a parent. And the Commonwealth's mammoth the revenue collections could mean tax rebates are around the corner for residents. An obscure state law mandates that if revenue growth outpaces wage growth in a given year, the excess money be returned to taxpayers. For the last fiscal year through mid-June, Massachusetts brought in almost $40 billion dollars. Governor Baker says the sum is expected to trigger the rebate law for only the second time in its history. Which is in some ways exactly what this thing was designed um, to ensure that people in Massachusetts participated in that windfall. Baker estimates the rebates will total more than $2.5 billion. In the forecast, 84 degrees now. Pretty humid out there right now. Sunshine clouds often on showers and thunderstorms today. Maybe even some hail. Tonight, more showers and then a string of lovely summer days. Starting with tomorrow, sunny skies. Highs just about the upper 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Two weeks ago, negotiations imploded over climate and energy provisions in a Senate budget package. But just last night, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia announced that they had a deal. And it is being hailed as a historic investment in climate action, if it passes. NPR's Laura Benshoff is here to walk us through it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Juana. All right. So this reconciliation bill from Democrats, it touches on taxes and prescription drug costs. But the big headline here is nearly $370 billion for energy and climate proposals. What would that pay for? A whole laundry list of things. That money would be dished out to incentivize clean energy manufacturing here in the U.S. It would expand tax credits to ramp up wind and solar construction. And those tax credits would also flow to still developing energy technologies like carbon capture, which is favored in fossil fuel producing areas. 
Sarah Ladislaw is a managing director at RMI, a nonpartisan group that backs clean energy. And she says getting all of this in one bill is itself pretty unusual. We usually have this tendency to either focus on innovation and R&D, maybe a little bit of lip service to manufacturing. But this, for the first time, is doing all the things. There's also tens of billions of dollars to advance environmental justice and incentives for buying a new or used electric vehicle. And taken all together, this spending aims to reshape the two most carbon polluting sectors of the U.S. economy, transportation and electricity generation. All right. But there are also some compromises here, like language about oil and gas leasing offshore and on public land. So give us an indication. How much would this move the needle on how much the U.S. actually contributes to climate change? It would make a difference. I talked to a couple groups that analyze how government action changes the outlook for climate change. Both said it would take some time to run their models. But Jesse Jenkins, who leads one such modeling project at Princeton University, says his preliminary read is that it would bring the U.S. much closer to its climate goals. It doesn't get us all the way there on its own, but it keeps us in the climate fight and it puts us within uh, a close enough distance that further executive action state and local government efforts and private sector leadership could plausibly get us across the finish line by 2030. That finish line is cutting carbon emissions in the U.S. by half from 2005 levels by the end of the decade, as the Biden administration promised. And that pledge is based on what climate scientists say we need to do. It's swift and aggressive action. The experts I talked to also said this package is meaningful because the U.S. isn't alone in setting ambitious climate targets. Taking action pushes other countries to meet their goals, too. And Laura, in the little bit of time that we have left, we know that Democrats in the White House have been facing pressure from all sides on this, with climate activists calling on the White House to declare a climate emergency, Republicans being critical of climate action. What are you hearing now? Republicans are still critical, uh, but I will say that most climate advocates have gotten on board. They support it as a necessary set of compromises that's a net positive for the environment. NPR's Laura Benshoff, thank you. Thank you so much. Let's shift from climate change to the broader economy. And another matter that's front and center for the country, are we in a recession? Also, does it matter? By which I mean, does it matter whether technically the country is in recession or not? When people are definitively feeling the pinch from inflation and everything from food to transportation to rent costing more. Let's bring in senior advisor to President Biden, Gene Sperling. He joins me now from the White House. Mr. Sperling, welcome back to All Things Considered. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Help us parse today's news. As you know, new GDP numbers are out today. The U.S. economy shrank in the last three months. This is the second consecutive quarter it has shrunk, which is often considered a recession. So is that where we are? No, uh, it's definitely not where we are. What we saw today was that the red hot growth we saw in 2021 is cooling, as you'd expect with the actions by the Federal Reserve. But what we've also seen these last few months is very solid job growth, very low unemployment, and a consumer that's still spending and still has probably a little more in their bank account than they did a year ago. And so, yes, we're an economy that is being affected by the global challenges on inflation, but we're also seeing the signs of of resilience, of, of jobs still being created, of unemployment that's still low. And finally, a little relief with gas prices having fallen. 
So you're pointing to job growth, which is obviously a factor. Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell, for example, top Republican of the Senate, says Democrats are trying to redefine what a recession is. He says Democrats should focus on improving the economy for working families instead of, and I'll quote him, telling people things aren't as bad as they look or feel. Does he have a point? Well, I will tell you what I've always said is that every person is the world's greatest expert of how they're doing. If a person is hurting, even if they have a job, even if they've gotten a raise, if they're hurting because of higher prices at the gas pump or at the grocery line, they're the authority. And yes, there's a lot of people in that situation. Or the, the housing market. For, asked, forgive me for jumping in, yeah. just but we're, we're speaking in the abstract, and I want to make it specific in the time that we have. We had on the program yesterday um, a number of Americans trying to buy a house and saying, you know, prices are going up, interest rates are going up, it's getting harder. I, I want to let you listen to one woman we spoke to and, and respond. This is Mackenzie Bathgate of Lansdale, Pennsylvania. We just want to have a family and a yard and be able to have a beer on our deck at the end of the day and I feel like the American dream isn't attainable anymore. The American dream isn't attainable anymore. What do you say to Ms. Bathgate? Well, I think the issue with housing prices is always complex because when they go up, it helps create more equity and security for those who own homes, and it can make it difficult for those trying to be a first-time homeowner. But I do want to say that Federal Reserve Chairman Powell himself said yesterday that what we're seeing right now because of the strong job growth is inconsistent with any definition of a recession. Chairman Powell also nodded to how tricky it is to try to calm the economy, the red-hot economy, as you call it, without sending it into a tailspin. How do you think about navigating that? No, I mean, that's the goal. Uh, Economists call it a soft landing. But what that really means is you want to be able to make that transition to a more stable growth with lower prices without having a downturn. And you certainly don't want people to become more negative than they should be. So the fact is, is that many of the things in the American Rescue Plan mean that state and local governments are still doing pretty well. Say the economy were to dip into recession, or say we avoid one, who's responsible it's it's the buck stops. Where does the buck stop question? Is this on the Fed? Is this on Congress? Ultimately, is this President Biden's economy? Look, it's a tough time for governments everywhere to be dealing with the lingering impacts of pandemics, the aftershock. But all of us have the responsibility to do everything we can to help working families with the, the number one issue that's hurting them, which is higher prices due to this global inflation. Gene Sperling, he's senior advisor to President Biden, on the line with us there from the White House. Mr. Sperling, thank you. Thank you so much. Sacramento's soccer dream is alive. On last night's program, we told you about Sacramento Republic FC. It is a second division men's professional team, but it made the semifinals of the country's oldest soccer tournament, the U.S. Open Cup. The other three teams were from the top division, Major League Soccer. And now Sac Republic is in the final after another thrilling victory. NPR's Tom Goldman was there. After battling mightily last night for two hours, 90 minutes regulation, 30 minutes extra time, Sac Republic and Sporting Kansas City still were scoreless. The contest to determine who goes to the U.S. Open Cup final would be decided by penalty kicks. It seemed like a crummy way to end an epic contest until it wasn't. Now shooting for the 
Could there be any better finish? Fan favorite Rodrigo Roro Lopez lined up a kick that could win the match. A fitting moment for the five foot seven team captain who led second division Sac Republic on its improbable run through the tournament. The ball hit the center of the net as the Casey goalkeeper dived to his right. Joaquin Castaneda was part of the sellout crowd of more than 11,500 that exited the Sacramento Stadium wide-eyed and amped up. This tells you right here, Sacramento is a soccer football team. We're, we're, we're like a small big town, but we got a big heart. And a big message, lower division teams can compete with the best, beat the best in fact. Sacramento has beaten the last three MLS teams it's played in this tournament. And it's another sign of men's soccer evolving with more talent and youth programs. Sac Republic is one of many teams with the youth academy that have helped cultivate the talent at earlier ages. Sac Republic, like the city it represents, has reveled in its underdog status. But the team's success is not fueled by emotion alone. The players, head coach Mark Briggs said last night, have shown great togetherness and quality in critical moments. The guys are comfortable when they're uncomfortable. That's what gets us through these games. Sac Republic goalkeeper Danny Vitiello was one of those guys fending off numerous shots all night. His diving block of a KC penalty kick was a huge and, he says, lucky moment that set up Lopez's heroics. Penalties are a lottery. You know, you got to die the right way. So far, Sac Republic has done everything the right way, showing the soccer world the men's game in this country is thriving, not just at the highest levels. On September 7th, Sac Republic plays MLS team Orlando City for the U.S. Open Cup title. Sacramento is the first lower division team to get to the final since 2008, with a chance to become the first non-MLS champion since 1999. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Sacramento. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, New York City and the risk of storm surges. On Wall Street, stocks rallied for a second day today. The Dow picked up a full percent, 332 points, to close at 32,530. S&P rose nearly one and a quarter percent to finish at 4,072. The Nasdaq gained more than one percent to close at 12,163. Workers at Trader Joe's supermarket in Western Mass have made history. The team at the store in Hadley has voted 45 to 31 to unionize. It's the first location in the grocery chain to do so. Workers say they're concerned about wages and safety. The company's spokesman says tra Trader Joe's has generous pay and benefits in retail industry. The next step is for the union to work out a contract with the company. It's 419. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. In the forecast, sometimes partly sunny this afternoon, sometimes clouds and thunderstorms, maybe even lightning. First part of tonight could be stormy, lows falling to about 71, and then clearing skies by daybreak tomorrow. Uh, should be a sunny and hot day, just about 90 degrees. 84 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As climate change warms the planet, drives up sea levels, and energizes hurricanes, a big concern is storm surge. NPR has analyzed modeling from the National Hurricane Center for Miami, Washington, D.C., and New York City. The modeling shows that development continues in places that will be underwater in future storms, putting hundreds of thousands of people at risk. In New York, WN. NYC's Jacqueline Jeffrey Walensky and Rosemary Mizderi report from different sides of the East River. I'm Jacqueline Jeffrey Walensky, and we're at the Washington Houses in Harlem, which are a sea of green. Lush grass and tall shade trees fill the campus of this New York City Housing Authority development. And there are garden beds everywhere. Eventually, we're going to have an apple and peach orchard. Claudia Perez, president of the Residents Association, says her neighbors spend hours each week tending the flowers and vegetables. And they've got more planned, too. We have lots of rose bushes. We have lots of gardening that happens here. And it makes it more beautiful. Actually, sometimes I don't even go on the street. I stay here, which is bad. But 10 years ago, during Hurricane Sandy, Perez saw the streets turn into rivers around her home. She watched as the storm hit the local hospital and two other public housing developments nearby. Sandy was really scary. When you see a hospital going underwater, you're like, oh my God, like, what's going on here? Perez's complex escaped Sandy. But with another few decades of sea level rise, a similar storm could bring floodwaters right to its doors. A WMYC NPR analysis of exclusive data from the National Hurricane Center shows that a Sandy-like storm could flood more than 50 NYCHA developments by 2080. That's nearly 50% more than were inundated by the original superstorm in 2012. Nationally, another estimate projects three times as many low-income homes at risk of frequent flooding by 2050. Bernice Rosenzweig is a professor of environmental studies at Sarah Lawrence College. People that live in affordable housing are more exposed to flooding, and they have the fewest resources for dealing with the increased flood risk. Rising seas threaten low-income housing up and down the coasts. But in a city with an affordable housing crisis, low-income New Yorkers can't lose any more housing options, particularly when they're already more vulnerable to the effects of climate change. People that did not in any way profit from the emission of heat-trapping gases are going to end up having to either leave their homes, or someone is going to have to provide funding to make their homes more resilient to flooding. The New York City Housing Authority spent nearly two and a half billion dollars to repair and upgrade public housing hit hardest by Hurricane Sandy. In East Harlem, damaged buildings are using FEMA money for backup generators, new roofs, and elevated electrical systems. But there are still many more that need to be climate ready, like the Washington houses. The Housing Authority, which receives about 60% of its funding from the federal government, says it will have to look for other ways to pay for the upgrades. The experience of Sandy prompted Perez to create an emergency plan for the Washington houses. 
She even helped write a bilingual illustrated pocket guide called Washington Houses Ready. I think this is important. Preparing for evacuation, which is on the first page. East Harlem is a neighborhood where a hurricane could cause severe flooding. In most emergencies where life is in danger, the first thing to do is call 911. But local advocates like Chris Dobins at the nonprofit We Act for Environmental Justice want the city to do more, like elevate the local waterfront. Otherwise, he says, it'll just get destroyed again by the next Hurricane Sandy. If we get hit by another superstorm and it happens to uh, coincide with the tides in the East River, East Harlem's going to get nailed and they're going to have to redo all the cosmetic work that they did. If they don't elevate it, I mean, it's going to waltz right in. Across the East River, upscale neighborhoods are also at risk. I'm Rosemary Mizderi in Brooklyn where the blue door for the El Pinguino Oyster Bar sits a few steps from the luxury tower-studded skyline of the East River. Owner Nicholas Padilla has been running a restaurant on this patch of the Brooklyn waterfront for more than a decade. And he has come to dread the rain. Water penetrates everything. It gets into every crevice. And even when it doesn't rain, the floodwaters seem to be waiting. It just seems crazy, right? We dug six inches underground in the basement and there was standing water. <laughs> but Padilla has no plans to leave. It's New York City, it's so hard to find somewhere to go. It just feels like people will just live here until it's in the river. Greenpoint and neighboring Williamsburg are among several waterfront areas in New York City that face severe threats from storm surge and sea level rise. At the same time, they're booming with development. The local community board estimates 20 towers are in the works, between 30 and 40 stories each, with median home prices over a million dollars. The lure of seeing the Manhattan skyline across the river and lavish amenities come with shortfalls for residents, according to local city council member Lincoln Ressler. Our area has grown in population and had more new housing built than any other part of New York City over the last 15 years, but we have not seen enough investment in strengthening our shorelines and realizing a more resilient waterfront. But major infrastructure projects like giant seawalls may be no match for keeping the East River at bay during a downpour. Over the next 30 years, tide and storm surges will increase further inland. That means flooding will happen 10 times as often. Many climate experts argue a much more drastic measure is needed. They say homes and businesses in these parts of the city will have to be abandoned, a process known as managed retreat. Dr. Klaus Jacob is a geophysicist at Columbia University's climate school. Engineering solutions have time limits. They work for a while in some places longer than others, but eventually the ocean will win. In a managed retreat, Jacob says the government buys out property in flood zones. The deserted areas serve as natural barriers against storm surges, protecting structures further inland. This was successfully done on Staten Island after Sandy. When the ocean comes, they don't care how long you have lived or whether your grandparents have lived there. To be clear, some climate experts believe that retreat should be a last resort. They say future technology and engineering solutions could help keep these communities safely intact. But even at this stage in the climate crisis, New York City doesn't have a master plan for climate resiliency. Municipal leaders say they're waiting to draft their strategy based on a report from the Army Corps of Engineers. This study will determine the feasibility of large-scale infrastructure such as seawalls for the more than 500 miles of urban coastline. 
but the final report has been delayed for years due to lack of federal funding. It's now scheduled to be released within the next two years. For NPR News, I'm Rosemary Mizderi. And I'm Jacqueline Jeffrey Walensky in New York. The rise of the super transmissible BA5 subvariant means there is a lot of COVID going around right now. So the federal government started planning to offer a second booster shot to adults under 50. But the Biden administration may scrap those plans to speed up availability of a booster shot that would target BA5 this fall. And some experts want to know, why not both? That and other COVID questions in today's episode of our daily news podcast. It's called Consider This. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, in Idaho, milk can be sold for 21 days after it's pasteurized. In Montana, it's just 12 days. The science is the same, but food expiration dates differ greatly, and that leads to a lot of food waste. That story's still to come. Sunshine clouds, pretty sticky out there. There could be some stormy weather in different parts of eastern Mass this afternoon and evening. The greatest risk should be between 7 and 11 tonight, with a possibility of thunderstorms, even some lightning. And uh, temperatures overnight should be about 71 degrees, sunny and hot tomorrow, highs about 90. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, where education never retires, exercising brains and building community. UMB.edu slash OLLI. Ain't nothing but a stranger in this world. I'm Christopher Lighton. Next time on Open Source, the secret Boston history of Astral Weeks, Van Morrison's epic all-time album. Rock critic Lester Bangs called it one of the most compassionate pieces of music ever made came together here in Boston in the seminal year of 1968. Astro Weeks next on Open Source, tonight at 9 and Sunday at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin released more details of a long-sought bill to help address climate change as well as energy security, drug prices, taxes, and inflation. NPR's Kelsey Snell reports Schumer hopes to pass the bill next week. The legislation, which is being called the Inflation Reduction Act, includes nearly $370 billion for energy security and climate change programs over the next 10 years. That's in addition to the $65 billion they already agreed to spend to extend expiring elements of the Affordable Care Act through 2025. The plan also includes more than $300 billion in deficit reduction from tax law changes on top of an already negotiated plan to cut Medicare costs through drug price negotiation. The deficit reduction in particular was a key element for Manchin. President Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi both say they support the deal and want to see it become law. Kelsey Snell, NPR News, Washington. The governor of Kentucky has declared a state of emergency after record rainfall caused flash flooding and mudslides in parts of central Appalachia. Governor Andy Beshear says at least three people have died from flooding in Kentucky. He says property damage has 
been massive with hundreds of people losing their homes. We're currently experiencing one of the worst, most devastating flooding events in Kentucky's history. The situation is dynamic and ongoing. In most places, we are not seeing receding uh, water. In fact, in most places, it is not crested yet. Water rescues continue across Kentucky, eerily reminiscent of the record flooding and aftermath in the St. Louis area earlier this week. More than 30,000 customers in Kentucky are without power. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts taxpayers could be in line for rebates from the state. That's thanks to a 1980s-era law that caps the revenue the state can collect. WBUR's Steve Brown has more. Voters passed the law in 1986. It states revenue growth cannot exceed the growth of total wages and salaries. That's only happened once back in 1987, but will happen this year with the state awash in revenues, and that will trigger the law. After signing the state's new $52.7 billion budget, Governor Baker said his administration is getting set to return a significant amount of money to taxpayers. We think the number is probably north of $2.5 billion that would be in tax rebates to the people of Massachusetts. The governor says the rebates should not affect a separate proposed billion-dollar tax cut the legislature is now considering. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Support, supporters of so-called overdose prevention centers say they're frustrated the state lawmakers have again killed legislation that would have allowed a pilot program. The facilities are also known as supervised consumption sites where people use illegal drugs under medical supervision. A state commission recommended the pilot two and a half years ago. Northeastern University law professor Leo Boletsky was on the commission. Massachusetts overdose rates continue to spiral. You know, no one is under the impression that it'll magically solve the overdose crisis, but it'll definitely help to save lives. And we need all the tools that are available. Some bills on the topic died in committee. One was sent for more study. The legislative session ends on Sunday. Unless there's movement, the earliest the bills could come up again will be next calendar year. The head of the Massachusetts State Police is reassigning four police academy staffers after an unauthorized exercise caused minor injuries to trainees. Colonel Christopher Mason also ordered an investigation into the matter. Trainees at the state police new Braintree Academy suffered blisters on their hands after instructors ordered them to bear crawl across hot pavement. An agency spokesperson says bear crawls are not part of the training curriculum and added no value to training. A law firm says it's investigating whether the T had appropriate safety measures in place during a fire on the Orange Line last week. Morgan and Morgan announced today it's been retrained by several retained that is by several of the 200 people who had to evacuate when their train caught fire on a bridge between Somerville and Medford. Some jumped out of windows. The law firm says their clients were injured in the escape. The T's general manager says last said last week no passengers reported injuries. In the forecast pretty steamy out there right now. Sunshine and clouds off and on. Showers and thunderstorms. Maybe some hail into the evening hours. Tonight, maybe some more showers. Overnight lows about 71. And then some nice summer days starting off tomorrow with sunny skies. Highs just about 90. 84 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, 
plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. It has been nearly 10 years since a white supremacist gunman entered the Sikh temple of Wisconsin in Oak Creek and shot 10 people. And in the decades since, there have been more attacks on houses of worship, from a church in South Carolina to the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. For some members of the Sikh temple, that makes this an especially difficult anniversary. Rob Menser of Wisconsin Public Radio reports. Satwan Singh Kalika brought his wife and two sons to Milwaukee from the Punjab region of India in 1982. He'd been a farmer in India. In America, he worked in a factory and later started a full-service gas station. By 2012, Milwaukee was his home. He was president of the Sikh Temple of Wisconsin. That August, his son, Pardeep Kalika, had a chance to reflect on just how far his dad had come. August 3rd was my birthday. It was the last time that I would see uh, I didn't know it at that time, but the last time I would see my father alive. On August 5th, a gunman entered the Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and fatally shot six people, including Satwan Kalika. Four others were injured. One victim who was paralyzed would die from his injuries in 2020. A police roadblock stopped Pardeep Kalika and his young family on their way to the temple that day. He waited all day for word about his father. He was the most determined man I've ever seen. And so by the end of the day, I really, uh, I, I knew before they ever made notification that he was probably one of the people that died inside. The shooter shot one police officer. Another officer managed to shoot him. The gunman died by suicide in the parking lot in front of the temple. Next week, the Sikh temple in Oak Creek will mark the 10th anniversary of the shootings. Priests there will perform a 48-hour prayer. The temple, or Gurdwara, will hold a candlelight vigil. It's a somber anniversary, but for some members of the Sikh community, it raises new frustrations. The last decade has seen a rise in mass shootings and a series of high-profile terror attacks on places of worship, including attacks by white supremacists. Anisha Singh heads the nonprofit Sikh Coalition. Oak Creek can be seen as that warning of an increasingly violent and assertive role that white supremacy was set to play in American society over the next decade. At a Wednesday evening service at the temple, priests and Gurdwara members read prayers. Navi Gill was 18 when the shooting happened. In a library room at the temple, he showed a visitor photos of the victims of the 2012 attack. These are the images of the six people that were lost. Sita Singh, Ranjit Singh were brothers. Today, Gill is in medical school. His life and the world have changed a lot. But when he thinks of the shooting... Sometimes it feels like it was yesterday. Like, some of the memories are so vivid. It feels like, you know, it just happened. And then you realize, no, like, these people have been out of our lives for 10 years. And you miss them. The man who opened fire in Oak Creek was named Wade Page. He didn't leave a manifesto or a trail of writings online, but he was an active member of hate groups, and he probably targeted the Sikh temple because its members are visibly different, mostly brown-skinned, some wearing turbans. Today, Pardeep Kalika's main work is doing therapy for people who've been lured by extremist ideologies. He's worked with former white supremacists, Islamists, and even eco-terrorists. We do not get upstream enough, and I'm trying to prevent the next Wade Page out there from hurting any community. 
Members of the Sikh community say the anniversary is a reminder to take the threat from extremists seriously. They're planning to observe it with community service events across the country. For NPR News, I'm Rob Menser in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Shoppers put a lot of trust in the dates stamped on food packaging. And Sarah Gonzalez with our Planet Money podcast reports it leads to a lot of wasted food. When you shop for milk, Mm -hmm. what do you do? I look for the freshest date. So you dig in the back? Oh, yes, absolutely. Do that with everything. Just did that with eggs. That's what I do. Food dates guide our buying decisions, and they tell shoppers like me and Lindsay Addington when to throw things out. 86% of consumers report that they either always or usually throw food away based on the date. Emily Bradlieb is a food expiration date and food law expert. She started the Food Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law School. And she says that of all the food waste that happens in the U.S., at the farm level, the manufacturing level, at grocery stores, about 40 percent of it happens at the home. So it's, you know, you're going to the grocery store once a week. Every single time you come out and you buy three bags of groceries and you just walk to the trash can and put one of them in the trash. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Food and Drug Administration, the Harvard Food Law Clinic, they all say that consumer uncertainty about the meaning of food dates is part of the food waste problem. And it's not just about wasting food or wasting the water and resources that went into making it. Food is the main thing we send to U.S. landfills. So when food goes to the landfill, it is a big emitter of methane. You know, methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. Do manufacturers like that we have all these dates so that we then buy more sooner? (laughs) Well, they they definitely want us to buy more. (laughs) But I think manufacturers would say that there's a benign explanation for why they like using dates, and it's that they are really wanting to protect their brand. They want to make sure that people eat food when it tastes its best. But food didn't always have a date on it, right? Before World War II, before everyone got a refrigerator, people got most of their food from farms. And they'd just look at it, smell it, taste it, and know if it went bad. But when we start getting more and more processed food and we start getting most of our food from grocery stores instead of farms, that's when we start wanting to know, like, how long is this orange juice good for? By the 1970s, 95% of consumers think dates on food are the most useful thing. And then state lawmakers started to introduce food date laws based on some experience they had. Often it was like, I went to the store, I bought some hot dog buns, and I brought them home and they were stale. And so I introduced a bill and everyone said, of course we should have date labels on products, and then it got passed. Today, food date laws are all over the place. One state requires date labels on milk and another requires them on Eggs, and a third state requires them only on cream. Texas says we definitely need dates on shellfish. Utah says, no, we don't. In Montana, milk has to be sold within 12 days of pasteurization. In Idaho, it's 23 days. And the fact that state laws vary so widely, I think, is evidence of the fact that this isn't really based in safety. The federal government doesn't actually require dates on any food except baby formula because the FDA says dates aren't really serving a safety role. Broadlieb says you do want to pay attention to dates on food in the prepared food section, though. Also, deli meat, raw fish, unpasteurized milk and cheese. For everything else, though, take a pause, look at the food, smell it, taste it. You would know if something went bad, she says. 
And there's actually a lot of consensus about what to do about confusing food dates. Food makers, grocery stores, federal agencies, they say we should get rid of all the enjoy-by, packaged-on dates and have only two options. Best if used by or used by. Best if used by would tell consumers this mustard would be best by this date, but you could still eat it after. Used by would tell consumers after this date, probably don't eat the mustard. Sarah Gonzalez, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Harley Quinn, the outrageous adult-oriented animated show centered on the Joker's unpredictable ex-sidekick, debuts its third season on HBO Max today. NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says it's one of the best and most overlooked versions of the DC Comics universe on film or TV. Given how much some folks complain about bloated, overhyped superhero movies and TV shows, I'm always surprised more people don't pay attention to HBO Max's Harley Quinn. I don't want to do a big evil plan, but do I want to help people? Maybe. I don't know. I just haven't really let myself think about it. That's Kaylee Cuoco voicing Harley Quinn, a one-time supervillain sidekick at a crossroads. She's rejected her toxic former boyfriend, the Joker, to forge a new relationship with another supervillain, Poison Ivy. And as the third season starts, Ivy and Quinn are celebrating their relationship with a crime spree, funded by playing a particular prank on Commissioner Gordon. This is the IRS calling, sir. You have a $90,000 lien on your house. How in the heck? Is this about my ex-wife? We're going to need to confirm your identity. What's your credit card number again? Oh, lifesaver. So, any credit card? Give me, give me, give me. The one with the highest limit. Culminating with the kidnapping of a certain celebrity. Queen Elizabeth II? How did she get in here? She shoved me in a bag. Happy two-week anniversary! Oh, wow, wow, Harles. What, you... You don't like it? People are going to be, like, looking for her. I just took my bra off. HBO Max's Harley Quinn is an adult-oriented affair. It's filled with the kind of violence, cursing, and sexual references that also powered the live-action Suicide Squad and Birds of Prey movies that popularized the Harley Quinn character in the first place. But there's also lots of sly satire, poking at superhero tropes, like a modernized version of the 60s-era Batman series with Adam West in tights slinging a legion of bad puns. Consider this moment when Harley and Ivy are fighting a C-list Canadian terrorist named Plastique. Step away, hosers! I almost blew up a super soldier land! Oh, is that before or after you stole Carmen Sandiego's coat? God, you know, I meant that as an insult, but I do love her. There's even shade reserved for side characters. For example, when Batman's former sidekick Nightwing shows up in the Batcave, the Cape Crusader has a question about his former ward's voice. What's with your voice? What are you talking about? It's a bit overly serious. I think it's an appropriate amount of serious. And when bad guy Bane tries to buy some explosives to take out Harley, he discovers his bank accounts have been frozen, which requires going over his recent charges with a curiously nonplussed bank teller. So there's like $20 at Big Belly Burger at 8 a.m. Yeah, I like a breakfast sandwich as much as the next guy. Another $30 at Big Belly Burger at 9 a.m. Well, perhaps more than the next guy. There's nothing suspicious about these activities. The wedding dress worn by Sarah Jessica Parker in the Sex and the City movie. Are you depressed? No, the it 
Newsflash, Bane is kind of depressed, as he reveals in a very Sex in the City-style personal monologue moments later. What makes all of this work is the story at the heart of the series, the journey of a woman moving from life as a powerful man's unappreciated enabler to someone who defines herself outside the bounds of any relationship. That's the secret sauce that makes this third season of Harley Quinn better than most TV shows and films about flying people punching up bad guys. It's a potent example of how to keep these stories relevant amid a glut of superhero stories, never losing sight of the bizarre absurdities or human drama at the core of it all. I'm Eric Deggins. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a congressional investigation has found that four corporate landlords evicted far more people during the pandemic than had been reported. It describes some of their tactics as harassment. Looking for something to do this weekend? WBUR's arts team is on the case. Check out five things to do this weekend. Go to WBUR.org. Game 100 tonight for the Red Sox as they wind up their series with Cleveland at Fenway Park. Boston puts Cutter Crawford on the mound against Tristan McKenzie. 7-10 game time. The Sox are 2-11 and in their last 13 games. In the forecast, could have a stormy evening in fact, we could have thunderstorms up until about 11 o'clock tonight. That's the possibility. And then skies should clear by tomorrow morning. Friday should be sunny. Highs about 90 degrees. As of now, the weekend is looking bright. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program at Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at franklinparkzoo.org. And Great Freedom Adventures, curated cycling tours inspired by the history and nature of New England. North Shore and Cape Tours booking now. Greatfreedomadventures.com. It was called an American Stonehenge. A mysterious granite monument, the Georgia Guidestones, was bombed this month. And that revived its long association with conspiracy theories in rural Georgia. I think what happened with the Guidestones kind of speaks to how pervasive conspiracy thinking has become. What really happened? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A congressional investigation finds four corporate landlords evicted far more people during the pandemic than they had previously reported. It describes some of their tactics as harassment. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports. The report finds the companies filed to evict nearly three times as many people as was known. Many had only missed one payment. Some were waiting on emergency rental aid. House Majority Whip James Clyburn says one company, the Siegel Group, used possibly unlawful deception. It looks as if they were using information and even misinformation in order to set people up for evictions. The report says Siegel falsely led tenants to think they were no longer protected by an eviction moratorium. In the case of one Texas tenant, the company also suggested having a security guard knock on her door repeatedly at night and swap out her air conditioner for one that didn't work. The idea was to force her to leave without a court order. Siegel, Pradium Partners, and Invitation Homes say they abide by all laws and helped tens of thousands of tenants stay put. 
Ventron Management did not respond to a request for comment. Jim Baker heads the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, an advocacy group that also tracks evictions. Too often, we tend to place the blame on the resident, but what we saw in the subcommittee showed was really a pattern of actions. These large companies were taking multiple steps to sort of force those folks out of their homes. Peter Hepburn of Princeton University's Eviction Lab doesn't think these are the only corporate landlords engaging in such practices. These firms are buying up a lot of housing, and they're particularly buying up housing in places that have relatively weak tenant protections. And I don't think that that is coincidental. He wants more transparency about the influence of these private investors amid skyrocketing rents and a historic shortage of affordable housing. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. Underground musician Sam Mehran, who was known to many as Outer Limits Recordings, died four years ago today. But his music continues to be published. It was on this day last July that his father and friends released the posthumous album Cold Brew. And now his friend Katie Rush has put out his entire found body of work on YouTube. As such a lover of his music and uh, someone who loved him more than anyone in the world, I knew that there would be others who would want to find everything he had ever made. NPR's Janaki Mehta has the story of how Cold Brew came together. When Sam Mehran was three or four years old, he would spring out of bed in the morning at the sound of his sister playing the piano. Masha was practicing Beethoven Ferenc. Mehran's father, Abbas Mehran, remembers Sam listened intently. Then, some days later, when their family was out getting ice cream, Sam heard a familiar tune coming from the truck. Sam said suddenly, Dad, Mom, Beethoven is selling ice cream. He says it was one of the earliest signs of his son's keen intelligence for music. And music is what Sam Mehran left behind when he died by suicide on this day four years ago. In the year before Sam passed, he mentioned this body of work to me multiple times, actually. Um, In June, before he passed, he played, I think, two tracks of the album for me. That's Nick Weiss and Katie Wagner. They were friends and collaborators of Mehran's, and after his death, they worked together to assemble the album Cold Brew. Sam's father was kind of the one that really started the process. And I said, this is my decision. I would like that you uh, go through the disc and see what you can do and produce an album for him. Sam's label agreed to put out the album, so Weiss and Wagner went to work. There were definitely hundreds of tracks and definitely thousands of files that we were looking through. Sam's friends and collaborators knew him to be somewhat disorganized with his files. He'd even go so far as to delete some of his own music if he was unhappy with it. But with the tracks that ended up on Cold Brew... There was something strange when I looked at the files. I was amazed at how organized it all was. And a part of me wondered if Sam did that on purpose. I don't know. I mean, whether or not this was on purpose, it just felt like it was meant to be that this would be released. It was difficult for Weiss and Wagner to choose which songs to include on the album. But they consulted Mehran's other friends and loved ones, and they looked for the music 
that felt most finished. You know, Nick, Abbas, and I, and the label, we just did everything in our power to make sure that every aspect of the album was true to who Sam was to the best of our ability. There was one point where I thought I was going to try to mix the album and then realized that I could definitely not beat Sam's mixing. It's like, if it sounds good, just let it be how he left it. Both Wagner and Weiss say Mehran's sense of humor was at the heart of his personality and the way he saw the world. So naturally, it shows up in his music too. One of his golden gifts was his guitar playing that felt so effortless. He would just be kind of laughing and giggling and just start playing these riffs and, and at first make it seem like a joke. And once he started playing it, every time it was just beautiful and perfect. Wagner, Weiss, and Abbas Mehran all agree this album is quintessential Sam. He was like, he was an alien. Everything about this planet and this world was kind of funny to him. He always laughed, smiled. He had this rock star energy, not in an egoistic way. But he was a big contradiction. He was both the most confident and the most insecure. Sam was so beautiful, but at the same time, he suffered. He suffered depression. But also just an extremely lovable person. I think a lot of people were in love with Sam Moran. There was just, he was magic. And there's one track that stands out for all of them. I have to say my favorite is Loungy. I think Loungy, if you were going to choose one. Loungy. When it comes in with that it's so catchy. This album isn't just a tribute to what Wagner calls Sam Mehran's musical genius. It's a way to immortalize Mehran, a way to let him speak for himself. This album is the essence of Sam's struggle for music. Sam Mehran was 32 years old when he died. The last of his music has now been published online. Janaki Mehta, NPR News. If you or someone you know needs help, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Game 100 tonight for the Boston Red Sox as they wind up their series with Cleveland at Fenway Park. Boston puts Cutter Crawford on the mound. The final match of the series tonight at Fenway with with the uh, Guardians will be preceded by an honoring of Joe Castiglione tonight before the game. Castiglione is in his 40th season announcing the Sox games on radio. That's the longest tenure of any Boston broadcaster. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A new report on the economy sheds light on the impact of higher interest rates and the cost of goods and services. Prices are getting higher and higher. It does make you wonder if the public is going to support those businesses. Does two straight quarters of negative GDP mean the country's in a recession? That story is coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the U.S. is trying to gain the release of two Americans held in Russia. It may involve a trade for a Russian imprisoned in the United States, the world's most notorious arms smuggler. Nursing homes have been routinely suing not only residents, but their friends and family for unpaid bills. And in a takeover that would create the nation's fifth largest airline, JetBlue has won a bidding war for the ultra-low-cost carrier Spirit Airlines. Federal antitrust regulators will have the final say. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration continues to push back against claims the U.S. economy is teetering into a recession. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the latest figures from the Commerce Department show the nation's gross domestic product shrank for the second straight quarter. Two consecutive negative quarters of GDP growth isn't technically a recession, but it's commonly taken as a sign of one. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says it's not the only factor to consider. Job creation is continuing. Household finances remain strong. Consumers are spending and businesses are growing. Yellen continues to downplay the potential for a recession, arguing that the U.S. is in a period of transition following rapid economic growth. Some Republicans are countering those claims after the latest government report showed GDP shrank by 0.9 percent in the last quarter. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Veterans groups are slamming Republican senators for blocking a toxic exposure bill. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports 25 senators voted against a bill they'd voted for just one month ago. The PACT Act would give health care and benefits to millions of veterans from Vietnam to Iraq and Afghanistan, from Agent Orange to toxic burn pit exposure. In June, it passed the Senate 84 to 14, but a technical error required another vote. This time, 25 Republicans switched, blocking a final vote on the same bill. At a rally outside the Senate, celebrity advocate John Stewart called it a betrayal of sick veterans. They lived up to their oath. These people thought they could finally breathe. You think their struggles end because the PACT Act passes? All it means is they don't have to decide between their cancer drugs and their house. 
Republican Senator Pat Toomey led opposition to the bill, which he called a slush fund. Vets groups are demanding the Senate pass the bill before its recess next week. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. The State Department has not heard back from Russia yet on a proposal to get American detainees home. NPR's Michelle Kelman reports the top U.S. and Russian diplomats have yet to set up a time for a call. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says the U.S. put a substantial proposal on the table weeks ago and hoped that the Russians would have responded by now. There is no reason to delay this uh, every single day that Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner uh, remain behind bars. Uh, it is injustice compounded on itself. Whelan is a former Marine convicted of espionage. Griner is a WNBA star who was arrested in February after authorities found vape cartridges containing hashish oil in her suitcase. The U.S. is reportedly considering a prisoner swap that could see a major Russian arms dealer freed. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Stocks gained ground. The Dow was up 332 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination is receiving a $3 million hike in state funding. The money is allocated in this year's state budget. Governor Charlie Baker signed the $52.7 billion spending package this morning. WBUR Simone Rios has more. State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz credits WBUR's reporting for the nearly 80 percent increase. We found the commission had a growing backlog of complaints, and some cases took over a decade. Chang-Diaz says the extra money will help people facing discrimination. Now having their budget be fully funded, you know, through our state appropriations, I think it's going to be a game changer. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. I know it's going to take time for MCAD to uh, fill the staffing shortages, but this is a huge step forward. The commission says it has also struggled with a string of departures during the pandemic, and it had trouble filling jobs in a tight labor market. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. While Governor Baker approved most of what was in the budget, he rejected a few items and sent them back with amendments for lawmakers to vote on. Baker sent back a plan to allow prisoners free phone calls. He says if lawmakers want that, then they should approve his plan to make it easier for judges to order criminal defendants held without bail pre-trial. Another amendment would give the city of Boston a representative on the MBTA's board of directors. A Massachusetts resident must earn nearly two times the minimum wage to afford a studio apartment. That's according to a new report from advocacy group, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. The report finds median wage-earning truck drivers, nursing assistants, and retail managers are priced out of the most modest rentals. The report says only Hawaii and California have more expensive housing than Massachusetts. Nearly half the state is now in a severe drought. The U.S. Drought Monitor reports 44 percent of Massachusetts falls under that classification. It includes all of the Boston area, the North Shore, and the South Coast. Nearly the entire state is at least under a moderate drought condition. In the forecast, we could have some clouds and thunderstorms moving in, maybe some lightning as well this evening. Temperatures overnight falling to about 71 degrees, clearing up by daybreak tomorrow. Friday should be sunny and hot, around 90 degrees. 84 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A new report card on the economy is fueling fears that the United States is in a recession. The U.S. economy contracted for the second quarter in a row. Economists and politicians are debating whether that means a recession is, in fact, underway. There's little question Americans are feeling pressure from slowing growth, rising prices, and high interest rates. NPR's David Gura reports. Lindsey Krenz owns a hair salon in Jamestown, North Dakota. That's about 90 miles west of Fargo. While she's aware of how the broader economy is doing, her sense of it is shaped by what's in her appointments book. People are maybe spacing their appointments out, not coming in as frequently as they used to, but they are still coming in. So business is slower, and it's been hard to get supplies. Krenz says they've gotten more expensive. The price of a tube of hair color is up a dollar, maybe a dollar twenty-five. And when something she needs at the salon goes on sale, Krenz does not wait. She stocks up. And at home, she's changed her spending habits. Yeah, I guess we're just being a little extra cautious right now, my husband and I, and not doing a lot of extra spending on things that aren't necessities right now because we are uncertain about where things are going. Utility bills have gone up. They're cutting back on some subscription services. Krenz lives close enough to work to walk there, but some of her clients live 100 miles away, and they complain about gas prices. Right now, Krenz says there's a lot of economic uncertainty. To me, it doesn't feel like we're in a full recession yet, but it does seem like it is definitely a possibility around the bend. Many economists share that outlook. Inflation is at a 40-year high, and the Federal Reserve is trying to get it under control by hiking interest rates aggressively to slow down the economy. Like Krenz, Fed Chair Jerome Powell does not think the U.S. economy is in a recession, and he continues to argue he and his colleagues will be able to bring inflation under control without triggering a recession. We continue to think that there's a path to that. We know that the path has, has clearly narrowed really based on events that are outside of our control, and it may narrow further. New data are fueling fears we're already there, in a recession. Well, today we learned that in April, May, and June, the U.S. economy shrank again. That's two quarters in a row. And for many economists, that means a recession. But President Biden and his advisors say, no, it's not a recession because of how strong the labor market is. It added 372,000 new jobs in June. Jeremy Schwartz is a senior U.S. economist at Credit Suisse. So two consecutive quarters of negative GDP looks pretty bad, but when you dig into the details, it's actually some unusual features driving it. Consumer spending slowed, but it was still positive. Wages have gone up, but have not kept pace with inflation, so people are spending less. Stores are dealing with a glut of inventory, according to today's report, and that echoes what retailers are saying. Walmart says that because food and other essentials have gotten more expensive, store shelves are packed with stuff that's not selling. And in many places, there aren't enough workers to sell that stuff. Krenz sees that in her hometown, especially in the restaurants. The prices are getting higher and higher, so then it does make you wonder if they are going to be able to stay open or if the public is going to support those businesses. So far, they have nationwide. Even though the economic outlook is uncertain, according to that GDP report, people did not stop treating themselves to dinners out. David Gura, NPR News, New York. 
A new Joint Coordination Center was inaugurated in Istanbul yesterday to oversee the export of millions of tons of Ukrainian grain now stuck at ports and warehouses. Getting Ukraine and Russia to consent to that hard-fought agreement was one thing. Actually, moving the grain may be tougher still. NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam has this report. The end game is to get roughly 20 million tons of Ukrainian grain into the global food chain, moving it from several Ukrainian ports across the Black Sea to Turkey, where it'll be sent on to the Middle East, Africa and elsewhere. The operation is logistically complicated and dangerous because it'll be happening in an active war zone. Who will guarantee the Ukrainian dockers and the ports that they will be in, in safety while they will do the loading operations on, on those vessels? Oleg Grigoryuk is the head of Ukraine's Marine Transport Workers Trade Union. He says there are serious concerns that Russia will launch missile attacks on Ukrainian ports. He points to what happened just after the agreement was signed. Straight after that, in, in 30 minutes, the missiles came to the support. I, I need much more solid guarantees because on the paper it's like looks nice and tidy, but in fact, we see what happens. But even before ships are loaded, they'll need to be thoroughly checked, says John Stoppard, who heads up security issues for the International Chamber of Shipping. There are ships in Ukrainian ports that have been there since February, and that will have had an impact on their seaworthiness, uh, their ability to operate deep sea. It's a case-by-case basis of whether those ships will be able to sail and when they'll be able to sail. Stoppard says it's believed some of the ships will be able to go as soon as the corridor is open. But there's the issue of ensuring safe passage for the vessels. The waters are riddled with Ukrainian mines. Stoppard says it's uncertain whether Ukraine has done any mine sweeping, but that the merchant ships will likely be escorted by Ukrainian warships. As far as we know, Ukraine will guarantee the safety of any ship transiting through the corridors. Whether they need demining or not, there is always the risk of unmoored mines, so we would want assurances that the corridors will be regularly patrolled so that that threat is mitigated against. The success of the operation requires all sides to live up to their commitments. Challenging when trust between Ukraine and Russia is tenuous. Any number of things, from miscommunications to mishaps, could lead to an attack from either side, which makes ensuring the ships challenging. But there will be support for this initiative amongst the specialist war risk insurers, not least because it's clearly a humanitarian agreement here. Richard Mead is editor of Lloyd's List, a London-based shipping intelligence service. We know that it's quite likely that what we're going to see is a consortium of insurers uh, essentially emerge over the coming days because it's going to be a risk that's probably going to be too big for any individual insurer. You're going to need to see a consortium cover for this one. Mead says right now all sides appear to back the operation to move the Ukraine grain. There's an effort to get the first ship out in the next few days just to show that the operation is possible. If all goes well, it's expected regular shipments will take a couple weeks to get started. Jackie Northam, NPR News. The U.S. is trying to win the release of two Americans being held in Russia. And it appears this might involve a trade for a Russian imprisoned in the U.S. That would be Victor Boot. So who is Victor Boot? Well, he was the world's most notorious arms smuggler. Or here's how CIA director William Burns put it concisely last week. Victor Boot's a creep. A creep. 
for more, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. All right, I'll put this question to you. Who is Victor Boot, and how did he become this infamous arms dealer? Well, we really need to go back to the Soviet Union breakup in 1991. All this military hardware was suddenly scattered across 15 brand-new countries, and it was terribly chaotic. Victor Boot at that time was just in his mid-20s. He'd been trained as a linguist by the military. He saw real opportunity. He acquired Soviet military transport planes, loaded them with weapons, and started selling them all over the world, Africa, Middle East, Asia. He sold to governments. He sold to rebel groups, anyone who would pay him. Uh, He became so notorious, there was a 2005 movie loosely based on his life called Lord of Death, starring Nicolas Cage. Hmm. Uh, He was finally arrested in 2008 in Thailand, extradited to the U.S., convicted in 2011, and he's been serving this 25-year sentence in Illinois. In Illinois. Now, why would Vladimir Putin, Russian President Vladimir Putin, want him back? He has a bit of a head-scratcher in some ways. I mean, he made his money, Victor Boot, by selling a lot of weapons that belonged to the Soviet military. So this is a question I put to Dan Hoffman. He's a former CIA officer who served in Russia and has long studied Vladimir Putin. Every opportunity he gets, Vladimir Putin wants to show that he can go toe-to-toe with Russia's main enemy. It's a real good public relations move for him to show that he's taking care of his own. Greg, address one of the objections that's being raised about this potential deal, which is that it is uneven. Two Americans, who the U.S. says shouldn't even be detained in the first place, in exchange for a major convicted arms smuggler? This is unusual. Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, there is this long history of the U.S. and Russia working out uh, trades of sorts, but often it's been a trade of suspected spies on both sides. So it would be unusual that this is pretty asymmetric, it seems. And and the two Americans are basketball star Brittany Griner, who's pleaded guilty to having hashish oil in her luggage, and Paul Whelan, a former Marine who often traveled openly to Russia, but he was detained and convicted three years ago in a secret trial on espionage. But Dan Hoffman says, you know, there's really no alternative in cases like this. These are dirty deals, but there's two bad options. One is letting our American citizens get sick and potentially even worse in jail. And the other one is make essentially as a dirty deal. If it's me, I'll get my U.S. citizens out. The backdrop to this, of course, is the ongoing war in Ukraine. What impact might this situation have on the wider U.S.-Russia relationship? Well, a prisoner swap would signal that despite all this tension, that the two countries can still do business at at some level. But there's really no reason to think that the overall relations are going to change from this current trajectory, which is really from terrible to to worse. And the main issue remains Russia's war in Ukraine, where the U.S. is arming the Ukrainians, and that looks increasingly like a long-term conflict. And PR National Security Correspondent Greg Myrie. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, Hulu will accept advertising seen as political after a backlash against its refusal to run ads on issues such as abortion. That story is coming up. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Stocks rallied for a second day. The Dow picked up a full percent, 332 points, to close at 32,530. S&P rose nearly one and a quarter percent to finish at 4,072. The Nasdaq gained more than one percent to close at 12,163. The site of the former AMC Chestnut Hill movie theater is said to be converted into a retail and office space. Property owner WS Development released the plans for the work today. The building sits on a strip of Boylston Street addresses the owner has branded the street. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel in Boston's Back Bay. Deluxe accommodations and kid-friendly, personalized service where families can relax in one- and two-bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Coming to City Space Wednesday, August 10th, a primary debate with the candidates for Massachusetts Attorney General. Free in-person and virtual tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Pretty sticky out there still. Could be some stormy weather in parts of eastern Mass this evening. The greatest risk should be between 7 and 11 tonight. And then overnight, a little bit warmer, 71 degrees tomorrow, sunny and hot, could reach 90. It is in the Boston area, 84 degrees now. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. So many Americans have medical debt that many are ending up in court as hospitals and doctor's offices sue patients. But nursing homes, they are going one step further. They're suing the friends and relatives of residents who don't pay their bills. NPR and our partner, Kaiser Health News, have been looking into this dark corner of America's health care debt crisis. And joining me to talk about this is Noam Levy, senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Hey there. Hi. So I want to make sure I understand this. If my elderly parent ends up in a nursing home, doesn't pay their bills, I could be sued? Amazingly, yes. So we've been digging into court records in Rochester, New York, where I've been told there are a lot of these cases, and we found scores of children, grandchildren, neighbors, friends who were sued, sometimes for tens of thousands of dollars. In a few cases, the lawsuits topped $100,000. Altogether, we identified 238 debt collection cases filed by nursing homes in and around Rochester between 2018 and 2021, and that's in just one community. And as you can imagine, these lawsuits can be pretty devastating. Here's Anna Anderson. She's an attorney at Legal Assistance of Western New York. She's defended a lot of people in these debt cases. 
I get calls all the time from people who are served with these lawsuits who had no idea that this was even a remote possibility, who call me crying and frantic because they believe not only that they're going to lose their own income in their own houses and assets, but also they're concerned that their loved ones who are still in the nursing home may be potentially kicked out. We heard from one woman whose brother had been admitted to the county nursing home after a hospitalization. A year later, out of the blue, she gets a call telling her that she's being sued for his debt. It was almost $8,000. Huh. She had no control of his money or any authority to make any decisions for him. She was so stunned and scared by the lawsuit that she was afraid to tell her husband. But, but hang on, because I'm trying to understand how this is even legal. I thought you couldn't be held responsible for someone else's debt. Well, usually that's true, but think about what happens at a nursing home. Most people who end up there are pretty old or infirm. A lot of times an adult child or a friend or a neighbor helps get them checked in and signs all the paperwork. And what trips many folks up are what's called admissions agreements. These have been used by the nursing homes for years. They often designate whoever signs them as a responsible party who will help the nursing home collect payments. Now, Federal law prohibits nursing homes from making relatives sign these things, but the reality is that people do get asked to sign, and here's Anderson again. If those folks bring that up to the nursing home while signing the paperwork, the nursing home workers and staff will tell the people that they don't have to worry about it, they're not liable, we just need someone to sign this just as a formality. And if people sign these forms without realizing what they're doing, they can end up in a lot of trouble. So what kind of trouble? I mean, assume uh, someone signs one of these agreements and then says, no, I'm not going to pay. What happens? Well, they get accused of breaching a contract. And then the nursing home says they need to pay, even if it's their mother or father or friend who is the resident. And the other thing we found is that nursing homes often accuse people of taking their elderly relatives or friends, money, or property instead of paying the nursing home bill. It's an accusation known in debt law as fraudulent conveyance. And Anderson says it can be very scary. They believe they're being accused of a crime. And it's, it's something that I think puts a lot of pressure on these third parties and family members to settle quickly and pay the bills. Now, it's true that sometimes family members do prey on the elderly, but we found almost 90% of the time that nursing homes were making these accusations, they didn't provide any records to support their claims. Now, Noam, I, I know you were reporting in Rochester, New York, but this is happening all over? Yes, yes it is. Now, nursing home industry officials say these lawsuits are rare, but we talked to consumer attorneys in California and Illinois, Kentucky, Massachusetts, Ohio, as well as New York who said they regularly see debt collection lawsuits against family and friends. And, and one attorney told me nursing homes are getting far more aggressive. So this is a national problem and yet another byproduct of our medical debt crisis. Noam Levy with Kaiser Health News. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. The streaming service Hulu says it will start accepting advertising about contentious political issues. The policy change follows protests earlier this week from Democratic groups who said that Hulu refused to run their ads relating to gun control and abortion rights. NPR's Chloe Veltman reports. As the midterm election cycle heats up, ads like this one might soon become common on streaming platforms like Hulu. Every day, 110 Americans are killed by a gun. 200 more will be wounded by gun violence before the end of today. Hulu's new policy to accept this type of ad follows pressure on social media from Democratic groups earlier this week. 
for them to block us from being able to communicate the gravity of the times that we're in was hugely problematic for us. That's Julie Norton. She's a founding partner at Mosaic Communications, a media consultancy firm that buys ads for Democratic clients. Since Hulu's parent company, Disney, announced it would bring the streamer into alignment with its cable services and allow political ads to run, Norton says her company now might be able to work with the streamer. We just have a broader definition of television these days. So these platforms are a critically important way of getting our persuasion advertising to the voters. Unlike TV networks, streaming platforms like Hulu and Netflix aren't obliged to comply with the 1934 Communications Act. That's the law that requires broadcasters to provide political advertisers with equal access to the airwaves. Broadcast TV is still expected to dominate this fall's cycle with over $4 billion in election ads, according to the political ad monitoring firm Kantar CMAG. But Kantar Vice President Steve Passwader says streaming reaches younger and more segmented audiences. This has become the new darling of the political set. And probably by the time this cycle is over, there's going to be a billion and a half dollars that finds its way to these, you know, ad-supported streaming outlets. Passwader says it won't be too long before streamers end up looking a lot like broadcast and cable channels, both in terms of the volume and the array of ads all along the political spectrum. But Mike Shields, founder and partner of the Republican political marketing and strategy company Convergence Media, says his firm is waiting to see who gets to place ads with Hulu and how those ads are treated before considering it a win for his clients. Conservatives have every right to be skeptical when something like this happens to make sure that it is done fairly and, and in a balanced way. In its announcement, Disney said Hulu will now accept candidate and issue advertisements covering a wide spectrum of policy positions. But the company still reserves the right to request edits to comply with industry standards. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in sports. The finale tonight of the series at Fenway Park between the Red Sox and the Cleveland Guardians. Cutter Crawford pitches for Boston. Tristan McKenzie for the Guardians. Game time is 7:10. The Sox will honor Joe Castiglione tonight before the game. Castiglione is in his 40th season announcing Sox games on radio. That's the longest tenure of any Boston broadcaster. In the forecast, still pretty humid out there right now. Scattered thunderstorms are likely to reach central and then eastern mass sometime between 7 and 11 tonight. A few of the storms could bring hail and some gusty winds as well. It is 84 degrees now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium. 
guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Massachusetts is full of brilliant professors who teach these classes that students can't get enough of. We can bring them to you. And up next, epidemics and Shakespeare. It turns out plagues figure pretty big into Shakespeare's plays. And we'll learn about it. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden spoke with his Chinese counterpart for more than two hours today as relations have been strained between the two countries. Chinese President Xi Jinping emphasized China's claim over Taiwan amid rising tensions over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's potential trip to the island, which has a democratic government. Here's NPR's Emily Fang. China's readout of the call between Xi Jinping and the president ended with a warning. Quote, China firmly opposes separatist moves towards Taiwan independence and, quote, those who play with fire will perish by it. That's a strongly worded note of caution from China, prompted by reports of a trip to Taiwan that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi plans to take in August. China is reacting aggressively to what it regards as a show of support for Taiwan, which China claims as its own. Some analysts fear that can include military action. NPR's Emily Fang, this was the fifth talk between the two leaders and the first since shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine. National Hurricane Center data shows nearly three-quarters of a million people at risk of flooding in decades to come from member station WLRN. Jenny Stiletovich reports the data focuses on New York City, Washington, D.C., and Miami-Dade County. At NPR's request, the Hurricane Center essentially used storms from the past to tell us what the future could look like. We know that climate change will bring more intense and more frequent hurricanes on top of rising sea levels. That means storm surge can make its way farther inland and start reaching areas that hadn't previously been threatened with flooding. Then we added census information and found that in Miami-Dade County and New York, the number of people exposed to flooding from storm surge nearly doubles by the year 2080. In Washington, D.C., the findings were surprising. The capital is mostly spared from flooding because the parks and monuments act as a buffer against storm surge. For NPR News, I'm Jenny Stiletovich in Miami. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine is recommending blood tests and medical monitoring for people who are likely to have had high exposure to the toxic chemicals known as PFAS. The chemicals have contaminated drinking water supplies in nearly 100 communities in Massachusetts. They're linked to poor fetal growth, high cholesterol, and kidney cancer. WBUR's Barbara Moran has more. The report offers the first comprehensive summary of the links between PFAS levels in the blood and specific health concerns. Laurel Shader, a senior scientist with the Silent Spring Institute in Newton, studies communities exposed to PFAS. She calls the report validating. This report will also be helpful more broadly in the medical community to raise awareness about um, health concerns around PFAS, and I hope that it will make PFAS blood testing more readily available. The state began requiring public water testing for PFAS two years ago. Since then, 93 cities and towns have had one or more test results over the legal limit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. 
Taxpayers could get money back from the state of Massachusetts. Today, Governor Charlie Baker said the state might return more than $2.5 billion in the form of tax rebates. He says the state took in so much more revenue than expected in the last fiscal year, it may have to return some of it. Baker says a 1986 state law requires rebates for any revenue deemed excessive. The announcement comes as lawmakers are considering a separate proposal to provide $500 million in one-time benefits and $500 million in permanent tax relief. Massachusetts lawmakers are expected to vote within the next few days on legislation to change the way state-run homes for military veterans are governed. The bill is in response to a deadly COVID-19 outbreak in 2020 at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home. More than 70 veterans died. State Senator John Velas was part of a small group of lawmakers that came up with a final language for the bill. My guiding principle throughout this entire thing was we need to pass some type of legislative package that goes away, a long way towards ensuring that something like this doesn't happen again. And I think we've done that. The bill would increase oversight and inspections at the state's two facilities in Holyoke and Chelsea. Massachusetts congressional candidate Dean Tran pleaded not guilty today to a set of larceny and gun charges. The Republican is accused of using his influence when he was a state lawmaker to coerce a constituent into selling him her late husband's firearms and stealing one of them. Tran says the charges are politically motivated. He was released today under conditions including that he surrender his firearms license. Tran is due back in court in September for a pretrial hearing. 84 degrees now in Boston. Could have showers, thunderstorms, maybe some with hail overnight tonight. Lows about 71. And then a string of lovely summer days to round up the month. Sunny skies tomorrow, Saturday, maybe Sunday too, with highs in the upper 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Anyone is susceptible to monkeypox, and the World Health Organization has now deemed the current outbreak a global health emergency. But not everyone is at the same risk. And so far, the current outbreak has predominantly affected men that have sex with other men. That is one reason GLAAD recently partnered with the White House on the federal response to the outbreak. The president and CEO of GLAAD is Sarah Kate Ellis, and she joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. The country's federal public health systems have gotten scathing feedback, frankly, about how they have handled monkeypox. One Washington Post op-ed called it a mess. What is the top priority right now? The absolute top priority is information, education, and getting the vaccines out quickly and equitably. So first and foremost, it's about the education information being sent out to the general public especially the LGBTQ plus community as we are indexing higher at this moment in time. It appears that there's about a batch of 800,000 that will be released in the coming weeks. So we're looking forward to that. The issue here 
is getting them out quickly and safely and to the most at-risk communities. We can and we need to be doing a better job of that. GLAD was formed in response to portrayals of gay people during the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Are there lessons learned from that experience that your organization can apply to the current situation and what we're seeing around monkeypox? Absolutely. There's two really big concerns about stigmatizing. One is it puts a community that is already marginalized, like the LGBTQ plus community, in greater danger of discrimination, hate, and violence. Number two is it puts an entire disease on one community and doesn't actually let us address the disease moving from one person to another, making it then a worse public health crisis than it needs to be. Earlier in the week, I spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the White House's chief medical advisor, and I asked him what he believed the federal government could do to combat homophobic stigma surrounding monkeypox. And part of what he told me is that it's important to concentrate on fighting the virus rather than stigmatizing people who have become infected. And he also talked about the need for, as you have, community outreach, easy access to testing and treatment. To your mind, does that go far enough or is there more that the federal government should do? I think for us, what we're really trying to help with as much as possible is focusing it in on the distribution of the vaccines because we know they work. That's the piece that I would add to Dr. Fauci's opinions and thoughts on this is that really getting those vaccines out there quickly and equitably is going to save a lot of spreading from happening. Does your organization feel that public health authorities were slow to take this outbreak seriously, to respond to it, because it primarily affected men who have sex or intimate contact with other men? You know, actually, this administration has an LGBTQ health liaison, unlike the former administration, and has been working with us closely from the initial onset of this. So I don't see it being that. What I do see is the federal agencies have to educate doctors, too, to spot the symptoms and to treat the symptoms if it continues to be stigmatized doctors and healthcare professionals will only be using a certain number of filters to identify and diagnose versus viewing the whole of society and identifying it and stopping the spread ultimately. Sarah Kate Ellis is the president and CEO of GLAD. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. The Coast Guard is responding today to a suspected migrant smuggling operation off the coast of Puerto Rico. Five people are dead. Dozens were rescued, many believed to be from Haiti. It's the second fatal incident involving Haitian migrants this week. On Sunday, an overloaded speedboat capsized off the Bahamas. Seventeen people died, all Haitian nationals. They're part of the largest surge of migrants coming to the U.S. from Haiti by sea in nearly 30 years. NPR's Greg Allen reports from Miami. Some parts of the Bahamas are less than 100 miles from the coast of Florida. That's long made it a popular route for smugglers, including those bringing migrants from Haiti. Migrants pay smugglers thousands of dollars. A large sum of cash was also recovered from the capsized speedboat. Royal Bahamas Police Commissioner Clayton Fernander says the boat's captain faces homicide charges. Uh, we did a background check, and he was charged for human smuggling in the U.S., 
and was convicted and spent two years. Fernandez says the captain, who he didn't name, also spent eight years in prison in Cuba for drug trafficking. In recent months, the U.S. has seen a spike in the number of migrants coming by sea from Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. The Coast Guard in Miami says it's responding to one or two migrant vessels every week. In April, the Coast Guard intercepted this small sailboat with 78 people aboard. As is the case with nearly all Haitians picked up by the U.S. at sea, they were repatriated, sent home a few days later. Hansel Pintos with the Coast Guard's Miami District says the service's main concern is preserving life at sea. The Florida Straits between Haiti and Florida can be treacherous, he says, especially for people in overloaded boats dependent on ruthless smugglers. In May, the Coast Guard rescued 38 survivors and they recovered 11 deceased people in a search and rescue mission that lasted four days, and that was near Puerto Rico. Their vessel capsized, and uh, they're left out to sea to their own devices, you know. Tessa Petit with the Florida Immigrant Coalition says it's obvious why so many Haitians are risking their lives on these voyages. Because of gang violence and political instability, Haiti has become very dangerous. She cites a recent U.N. report. From July 8th to July 17th, 417 people were either killed or reported missing from gang violence. That is more people than the, the death toll in the Ukraine war. Gangs have taken over large sections of the capital, Port-au-Prince. Haiti hasn't had a president for more than a year, and the economy is nearing collapse. Petite, who was born and raised in Haiti, says she's never seen conditions this bad. Those with resources, she says, are leaving the country by plane to connect with family members abroad. Migrants intercepted by the Coast Guard and sent back to Haiti, she says, will try again. Petit quotes a saying often heard on the island. Death in Haiti is guaranteed, but if I go on boat, I may make it. They have actually hope by getting on that boat and heading towards another country. They have more hope than staying in Haiti. Petit says unlike migrants from Cuba and Venezuela, few Haitians are given the opportunity to apply for asylum. One reason is that unlike Haiti, those two countries don't have deportation agreements with the U.S. Historically, she says, Haitian migrants have received harsher treatment than other groups. It's not a question of playing the color cards. The, the facts show it, that Haitians have systematically been treated differently than other migrants. Petite and other Haitian advocates have been pushing for the end of pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42. That public health order allows immigration authorities to quickly expel migrants without allowing them to seek asylum. The Biden administration moved to end it, but a federal judge ruled it must stay in place for now. At the same time, officials don't want to adopt any policies that may encourage more migrants to make the perilous trip by sea. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The bidding war for Spirit Airlines is over, and JetBlue is the winner. The Boston-based airline will pay $3.8 billion for the ultra-low-cost carrier Spirit, and if the deal is approved by antitrust regulators, the new JetBlue would become the nation's fifth-largest airline. But consumer advocates worry that the merger might actually lead to higher fares and less competition, as NPR's David Shaper reports. Spirit and JetBlue are very different airlines. JetBlue offers moderately low fares while providing free Wi-Fi, free entertainment on seatback video screens, and free snacks. Oh, and their seats are bigger and further apart, providing what they say is the industry's most legroom in coach. 
There's none of that on Spirit. Their seats are among the most cramped in the industry. And while the basic fares are super low, Spirit charges extra fees for just about everything, even assigned seats in carry-on bags. But in an industry dominated by the big four, American, Delta, United, and Southwest, which control about 80% of the market share, JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes told CNBC today that combining his airline with Spirit creates a strong new challenger. The best thing that we can do to create a more vibrant, a more competitive industry is to really empower this uh, new, larger JetBlue that can bring low fares and great service together. JetBlue launched a hostile takeover bid in April after Spirit had already agreed to merge with fellow low-cost carrier Frontier. JetBlue offered shareholders a lot more money in an all-cash deal and then kept upping the offer until shareholders voted to reject the Frontier agreement yesterday. Acquiring Spirit would nearly double JetBlue in size, giving it 458 airplanes and more than 1,700 daily flights to more than 125 destinations. What this merger is going to mean, assuming it gets cleared by regulators, is that Spirit's going away and a lot of those bottom cheapest fares that we see aren't going to exist anymore. David Slotnick is senior airline reporter for the Points Guy travel website. At the same time, there's going to be a real true competitor to the big airlines um, in a way that we haven't seen in years, really. And he says that could be especially true to certain destinations. JetBlue and Spirit are both very heavily focused in Florida. JetBlue obviously has the Northeast pretty well. Um, and, you know, those are pretty big leisure routes, um, people visiting family, people going on vacation. But travel consumer advocate Bill McGee of the American Economic Liberties Project doesn't think this merger will be good for consumers. No. I mean, I can't put it more simply than that. There's no way that this will increase competition. It will diminish competition. And that is what every airline merger in the last 30 years has done. McGee says while Spirit draws among the most customer service complaints in the industry, it does benefit consumers in one way. When an ultra-low-cost carrier like Spirit is in a market, the fares go down. Even if you're flying American or United, if Spirit's on that route, you're paying less. You're not going to pay as, 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 as little as Spirit charges, but the big guys will have to bring down their fares. So McGee predicts that if the deal is approved and Spirit is absorbed by JetBlue, airfares will rise across the board. He and other consumer advocates are urging the Justice Department to thoroughly review this proposed airline merger. David Shaper, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, film critic Bob Mondello and the passing of a mob generation with funerals for actors Ray Liotta, Paul Sorvino, James Caan, and Tony Sirico all in one month. That's coming up. And on Marketplace this evening, starting at 6.30, from credit card transactions to cash, point-of-sales systems such as Square are an all-in-one package for small businesses. But that means when the system goes down, there's not always a good backup. And I see all these items and in my head, I'm doing the math like, oh, my gosh, this is a huge purchase. I can't let this go. So, you know, just trying to figure out ways to make this sale happen. 
That's on Marketplace. Again, it starts at 6.30. First part of tonight could be stormy. Lows falling to about 71 degrees overnight. And then skies should clear by tomorrow morning. Friday should end up sunny and hot, around 90 degrees at the highest. As of now, the weekend's looking pretty bright. Sunshine both Saturday and Sunday, with highs in the mid to upper 80s. It'll be game 100 tonight for the Red Sox as they wind up their series with Cleveland at Fenway Park. Boston puts Cutter Crawford on the mound against Tristan McKenzie. 7-10 game time tonight. The Sox are 2-11 and in their last 13 games. It's 5-50. Jay Powell, the Fed chair, and all of his colleagues down at the Federal Reserve are trying to tell markets, investors, businesses, consumers right now that, yes, inflation is very painful. It is clearly with us right now, but it is not going to be here forever, and you should not change your behavior in ways that might lock it in. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. President Joe Biden spoke to his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping for more than two hours today. Attention on that call grew in recent days as the Chinese government expressed concerns about a possible trip to Taiwan by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And this all comes at a time when there are deep divisions between the two superpowers, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine, U.S. tariffs, and Chinese aggression in the Pacific. Here to discuss it all with us is White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Hey, Franco. Hey, Juana. Franco, this was their fifth call since President Biden took office. What more can you tell us about it? You know, both sides said the conversation was candid and they went into a lot of issues. They discussed areas where they feel they could work together, including on the climate, health care and counter narcotics. They discussed U.S. tariffs against China. They discussed Ukraine and the global impacts the war is having. A senior administration official also told us reporters that there was an in-depth, in-depth discussion on Taiwan, describing it as direct and honest, and said the leaders acknowledged the fact that the U.S. and China have differences when it comes to China, Let's- Taiwan. Yeah, let's talk about that. What is the sensitivity about Taiwan, Franco? Well, Beijing considers the island a part of China and is threatened to forcibly take control of the island in a move the West opposes. Now, U.S. policy maintains diplomatic relations with China rather than Taiwan. At the same time, the United States also has an unofficial relationship with Taiwan, and it's a robust relationship. I mean, Biden has said multiple times that the U.S. would protect Taiwan if China attacked. And those kind of comments had to be quickly walked back with administration officials insisting there is no policy change. You know, it's all very sensitive. In the Chinese readout, the Chinese government warned that those who play with fire will perish by it. Mm. And this possible trip by Pelosi is a big concern for them. What does the administration say then about that possible trip? I don't think it's been confirmed yet. Yeah, the administration has repeatedly declined to say anything about the rumored visit, except to note that nothing has been announced and that Congress is a separate co-equal branch of government. So the House Speaker makes her own travel decisions. But last week, Biden told reporters that the U.S. military was against the idea of Pelosi traveling Taiwan. And Biden does need to be careful, though, making comments like that because, you know, We're right close to the midterm election, and politicians on both sides of the aisle have spoken out about not allowing China to dictate a U.S. leader's travel. And one, if I could just make one more note, Mm -hmm. you know, just looking forward, senior administration officials said the two leaders agreed 
that a face-to-face meeting would be beneficial and instructed their teams to, to search out a good time for them to meet. NPR's Franco Ordonez, thank you. Thank you. In recent weeks, Hollywood has build, has bid a final farewell to five actors who excelled at playing gangsters. James Caan, Sonny and the Godfather, was perhaps the most famous. And the promise is that the deal is so good that we can't refuse. Hey. All five were associated with Hollywood's depiction of the mafia. Critic Bob Mondello says there's a reason their loss hits hard. At the beginning of The Godfather, a Sicilian undertaker asks Marlon Brando's Don Corleone for justice in a way that Don has indicated he must. Be my friend. Godfather. In the background of the shot, not yet in focus, either as a character or as an actor, is James Caan playing Sonny, the Corleone family's heir apparent, listening intently to his father. Someday, and that day may never come, I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But uh, until that day... Many months later, Sonny, having long since come into focus as hot-headed, impulsive, and violent, lies shredded by bullets on a mortuary slab. And someday has come. I want you to use all your powers and all your skills. A father's last request for his son. I don't want his mother to see him this way. In the gangster flicks of an earlier era, nearly always told from the moralistic viewpoint of the authorities, this scene wouldn't exist. In 1972, The Godfather changed the formula. It asked us to identify not with the law, but the mafiosi. Asked us to feel for them. Look how they massacred my boy. And we did. When mobsters died in The Godfather, audiences wept, and the actors who played those mobsters got identified with them in ways that earlier actors, say Jimmy Cagney, never did. Take it, you dirty yellow-bellied rat, or I'll give it to you through the door! Given the artificiality of gangster flicks in the 1930s and 40s, nobody confused Cagney with the characters he played, especially as he also played George M. Cohan. Give my regards to Broadway. But James Caan got turned down when he tried to join a country club because its members so believed his performance, they thought that, like Sonny, he was a made man. And with The Godfather ushering in a new realism in mob movies, he wasn't alone. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Ray Liotta, who played the lead in Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, also struggled to avoid typecasting, as did Paul Sorvino, who played his mentor in the film. Why would I want to get into that? Don't make a jerk out of me. Just don't do it. I want to talk to you about Jimmy. You got to watch out for him. And the once a gangster, always a gangster thing didn't just happen to featured players. Quite a few of Servino's Goodfellas henchmen found steady employment with suburban mafioso Tony Soprano a decade later, including Paul Herman, who played Beansy. This maniac threw a vat of hot oil right from the Zeppelin stand. And Tony Sirico, who played Walnuts Galtieri. Tommy Sugar, he would have been done. <laughs> Still, this wave of modern mafia epics was just that a wave that crested with the Sopranos almost two decades ago. There are still occasional mob stories with Italian faces, but in recent years a more egalitarian Hollywood has turned its attention to African-American anti-heroes, Asian cyber criminals, drug cartels from Latin America, and as the mafia recedes, so eventually must its interpreters. You ever feel like nothing good was ever going to happen to you? Yeah, and nothing did. So what? I'm alive, I'm surviving, 
All five of these actors, still robust and working at the start of this year, are now gone, which is perhaps unsurprising in actuarial terms, but still comes as a shock. We tend to freeze actors in the roles we best remember. Khan was in his early 30s when he made The Godfather, young, vital. What the hell is this? That's a silly message. But it's now a half century later. Leota was in his 30s, Servino, Sirico, and Herman in their 40s and 50s when Goodfellas premiered, and that's 32 years ago. But we remember them all at their peak, which makes their loss feel like the passing of a generation. It happens to every genre, the great silent comedians, the tap-dancing musical stars of the 30s and 40s, the cowpokes and lawmen who rode a cinemascope range in the 1950s. There will come a time, with luck, decades from now, when audiences will mourn the passing of a generation of superheroes. But this crowd is the one we're losing now. The mobsters we, unexpectedly, and against all our better instincts, came to care about. I'm Bob Mandela. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from your part-time controller, your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, assisting those working from home and also enabling remote assistance for customers at remotepc.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden says a new piece of legislation will tackle climate change and deliver jobs. Manufacturing jobs on clean energy construction projects, solar projects, wind projects, clean hydrogen projects, carbon capture projects. That story coming up. This is Thursday, July 28th. You're listening to All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the GDP fell 0.9% in the second quarter for the second straight decline. We'll talk with White House Senior Advisor Gene Sperling about today's GDP numbers and the health of the U.S. economy. And storm surge related to climate change will likely get worse in coastal areas, yet builders continue to build in places in New York that may one day be underwater. Flooding is flooding. And so if we not take that into account, it's sheer denial. And Sacramento's soccer team keeping the dream alive. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says a deal reached between Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin will help to lower inflation. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden is nearing another legislative win that would resurrect some of his stalled domestic priorities. President Biden touted the bill from the White House, saying that it has a lot of elements of his agenda, including on prescription drugs and climate. The work of the government can be slow and frustrating and sometimes even infuriating. Then the hard work of hours and days and months from people who refuse to give up pays off. Biden says the legislation would help lower health insurance costs and lower the cost of prescription drugs. It would also create a new 15 percent minimum tax on big corporations. The legislation will need the support of all 50 Senate Democrats and a majority of the House. If signed, it would be a big win for Biden at a critical time before the midterm elections. Franco. Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. A congressional investigation finds four corporate landlords moved to evict far more people than they'd said they would during the first year of the coronavirus pandemic. NPR's Jennifer Ludden says lawmakers describe some of the landlords' tactics as harassment. The new report finds one company misled tenants into thinking an eviction moratorium was no longer in force. That company also suggested trying to push one Texas woman to move out by swapping her air conditioner for one that didn't work. All four companies filed for eviction against many people who'd only missed one payment, or some were waiting to receive emergency rental aid. NPR's Jennifer Ludden. Kentucky's governor is declaring a state of emergency due to severe flash flooding in the eastern part of the state, and more rain is on the way. Member station WEKU Stan Ingle has more on the governor's declaration and rescue efforts. There are multiple reports of damaged homes, roads, power outages, and loss of cell phone service in eastern Kentucky. Heavy rains have caused major flooding throughout the region. Governor Andy Bashir declared a state of emergency and says it isn't over yet. We are currently experiencing one of the worst, most devastating flooding events in Kentucky's history. The situation is dynamic and ongoing. The governor has activated the National Guard to help rescue and recovery efforts. Helicopters and heavy trucks are being moved into the area. For NPR News. I'm Stan Ingold in Richmond, Kentucky. The day after shareholders of Spirit Airlines rejected a merger deal with Frontier, rival JetBlue has agreed to pay $3.8 billion for the carrier, creating what would be the nation's fifth largest airline. Under terms of the deal, JetBlue would pay $33.50 a share for its rival. Initially, Spirit appeared to be more in favor of a deal with Frontier, citing regulatory concerns it might be tougher for JetBlue. However, JetBlue has maintained that the merger will clear regulatory hurdles. Stocks gained ground today on Wall Street. The Dow was up 332 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts taxpayers could be seeing rebates. That's thanks to a 1980s-era law capping the revenue the state can collect. WBUR Steve Brown has details. Voters passed the law in 1986. It states revenue growth cannot exceed the growth of total wages and salaries. That's only happened once back in 1987, but will happen this year with the state awash in revenues, and that will trigger the law. After signing the state's new $52.7 billion budget, Governor Baker said his administration is getting set to return a significant amount of money to taxpayers. We think the number is probably north of $2.5 billion that would be in tax rebates to the people of Massachusetts. The governor says the rebates should not affect a separate proposed billion-dollar tax cut the legislature is now considering. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. 
All Massachusetts students will be able to access free meals at school in the next academic year. The budget the governor signed today provides $110 million in state funding to continue a pandemic-era program. Federal funding for it ended in June. Supporters of so-called overdose prevention centers are frustrated that state lawmakers have again killed legislation that would allow what that would have, have allowed a pilot. The facilities are also known as supervised consumption sites where people could use illegal drugs under medical supervision. A state commission recommended the pilot two and a half years ago. Northeastern University law professor Leo Beletsky was on that commission. Massachusetts overdose rates continue to spiral. You know, no one is under the impression that it'll magically solve the overdose crisis, but it'll definitely help to save lives. And we need all the tools that are available. Some bills on this topic died in committee. One was sent for more study. The legislative session ends Sunday. Unless something unexpected happens, the earliest the bills could come up again will be next year. The head of the Massachusetts State Police is reassigning four police academy staffers after an unauthorized exercise caused minor injuries to trainees. Colonel Christopher Mason has also ordered an investigation into the matter. Trainees at the State Police's new Braintree Academy suffered blisters on their hands after instructors ordered them to bear crawl across hot pavement. An agency spokesperson says bear crawls are not part of the training curriculum and add no value to training. A law firm says it's investigating whether the T had appropriate safety measures in place during a fire on the Orange Line last week. Morgan & Morgan announced today it's been retained by several of the 200 people who had to evacuate when their train caught fire on a bridge between Somerville and Medford. Some jumped out windows. The law firm says their clients were injured in the escape. The T's general manager said last week that no passengers reported injuries. It's 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. rwjf.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Two weeks ago, negotiations imploded over climate and energy provisions in a Senate budget package. But just last night, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia announced that they had a deal. And it is being hailed as a historic investment in climate action, if it passes. NPR's Laura Benshoff is here to walk us through it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Juana. All right. So this reconciliation bill from Democrats, it touches on taxes and prescription drug costs. But the big headline here is nearly $370 billion for energy and climate proposals. What would that pay for? A whole laundry list of things. That money would be dished out to incentivize clean energy manufacturing here in the U.S. It would expand tax credits to ramp up wind and solar construction. And those tax credits would also flow to still developing energy technologies like carbon capture, which is favored in fossil fuel producing areas. Sarah Ladislaw is a managing director at RMI, a nonpartisan group that backs clean energy. And she says getting all of this in one bill is itself pretty unusual. We usually have this tendency to either focus on innovation and R&D, maybe a little bit of lip service to manufacturing, but this for the first time is doing all the things. There's also tens of billions of dollars to advance environmental justice and incentives for buying a new or used electric vehicle. 
And taken all together, this spending aims to reshape the two most carbon polluting sectors of the U.S. economy, transportation and electricity generation. All right. But there are also some compromises here, like language about oil and gas leasing offshore and on public land. So give us an indication. How much would this move the needle on how much the U.S. actually contributes to climate change? It would make a difference. I talked to a couple groups that analyze how government action changes the outlook for climate change. Both said it would take some time to run their models. But Jesse Jenkins, who leads one such modeling project at Princeton University, says his preliminary read is that it would bring the U.S. much closer to its climate goals. Doesn't get us all the way there on its own, but it keeps us in the climate fight and it puts us within uh, a close enough distance that further executive action state and local government efforts and private sector leadership could plausibly get us across the finish line by 2030. That finish line is cutting carbon emissions in the U.S. by half from 2005 levels by the end of the decade, as the Biden administration promised. And that pledge is based on what climate scientists say we need to do. It's swift and aggressive action. The experts I talked to also said this package is meaningful because the U.S. isn't alone in setting ambitious climate targets. Taking action pushes other countries to meet their goals, too. And Laura, in the little bit of time that we have left, we know that Democrats in the White House have been facing pressure from all sides on this, with climate activists calling on the White House to declare a climate emergency, Republicans being critical of climate action. What are you hearing now? Republicans are still critical. Uh, but I will say that most climate advocates have gotten on board. They support it as a next necessary set of compromises that's a net positive for the environment. NPR's Laura Benshoff, thank you. Thank you so much. Let's shift from climate change to the broader economy. And another matter that's front and center for the country, are we in a recession? Also, does it matter? By which I mean, does it matter whether technically the country is in recession or not? When people are definitively feeling the pinch from inflation and everything from food to transportation to rent costing more. Let's bring in senior advisor to President Biden, Gene Sperling. He joins me now from the White House. Mr. Sperling, welcome back to All Things Considered. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Help us parse today's news. As you know, new GDP numbers are out today. The U.S. economy shrank in the last three months. This is the second consecutive quarter it has shrunk, which is often considered a recession. So is that where we are? No, uh, it's definitely not where we are. What we saw today was that the red hot growth we saw in 2021 is cooling, as you'd expect with the actions by the Federal Reserve. But what we've also seen these last few months is very solid job growth, very low unemployment, and a consumer that's still spending and still has probably a little more in their bank account than they did a year ago. And so, yes, we're an economy that is being affected by the global challenges on inflation, but we're also seeing the signs of, of resilience, of, of jobs still being created, of unemployment that's still low. And finally, a little relief with gas prices having fallen. So you're pointing to job growth, which is obviously a factor. Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell, for example, top Republican of the Senate, says Democrats are trying to redefine what a recession is. He says Democrats should focus on improving the economy for working families instead of, and I'll quote him, telling people things aren't as bad as they look or feel. Does he have a point? Well, I will tell you what I've always said is that every person is the world's greatest expert of how they're doing. 
if a person is hurting, even if they have a job, even if they've gotten a raise, if they're hurting because of higher prices at the gas pump or at the grocery line, they're the authority. And yes, there's a lot of people in that situation. Or the, the housing market. For, asked, forgive me for jumping in, yeah. just, but we're, we're speaking in the abstract, and I want to make it specific in the time that we have. We had on the program yesterday um, a number of Americans trying to buy a house and saying, you know, prices are going up. Interest rates are going up. It's getting harder. I, I want to let you listen to one woman we spoke to and, and respond. This is Mackenzie Bathgate of Lansdale, Pennsylvania. We just want to have a family and a yard and be able to have a beer on our deck at the end of the day and I feel like the American dream isn't attainable anymore. The American dream isn't attainable anymore. What do you say to Ms. Bathgate? Well, I think the issue with housing prices is always complex because when they go up, it helps create more equity and security for those who own homes, and it can make it difficult for those trying to be a first-time homeowner. But I do want to say that Federal Reserve Chairman Powell himself said yesterday that what we're seeing right now because of the strong job growth is inconsistent with any definition of a recession. Chairman Powell also nodded to how tricky it is to try to calm the economy, the red-hot economy, as you call it, without sending it into a tailspin. How do you think about navigating that? No, I mean, that's the goal. Uh, Economists call it a soft landing. But what that really means is you want to be able to make that transition to a more stable growth with lower prices without having a downturn. And you certainly don't want people to become more negative than they should be. So the fact is, is that many of the things in the American Rescue Plan mean that state and local governments are still doing pretty well. Say the economy were to dip into recession, or say we avoid one, who's responsible it's it's the buck stops. Where does the buck stop question? Is this on the Fed? Is this on Congress? Ultimately, is this President Biden's economy? Look, it's a tough time for governments everywhere to be dealing with the lingering impacts of pandemics, the aftershock. But all of us have the responsibility to do everything we can to help working families with the, the number one issue that's hurting them, which is higher prices due to this global inflation. Gene Sperling, he's senior advisor to President Biden, on the line with us there from the White House. Mr. Sperling, thank you. Thank you so much. Sacramento's soccer dream is alive. On last night's program, we told you about Sacramento Republic FC. It is a second division men's professional team, but it made the semifinals of the country's oldest soccer tournament, the U.S. Open Cup. The other three teams were from the top division, Major League Soccer. And now Sac Republic is in the final after another thrilling victory. NPR's Tom Goldman was there. After battling mightily last night for two hours, 90 minutes regulation, 30 minutes extra time, Sac Republic and Sporting Kansas City still were scoreless. The contest to determine who goes to the U.S. Open Cup final would be decided by penalty kicks. It seemed like a crummy way to end an epic contest until it wasn't. Could there be any better finish? Fan favorite Rodrigo Roro Lopez lined up a kick that could win the match. A fitting moment for the five foot seven team captain who led second division Sac Republic on its improbable run through the tournament. 
The ball hit the center of the net as the Casey goalkeeper dived to his right. Joaquin Castaneda was part of the sellout crowd of more than 11,500 that exited the Sacramento Stadium wide-eyed and amped up. This tells you right here, Sacramento is a soccer football team. We're, we're, we're like a small big town, but we got a big heart. And a big message, lower division teams can compete with the best, beat the best in fact. Sacramento has beaten the last three MLS teams it's played in this tournament. And it's another sign of men's soccer evolving with more talent and youth programs. Sac Republic is one of many teams with the youth academy that have helped cultivate the talent at earlier ages. Sac Republic, like the city it represents, has reveled in its underdog status. But the team's success is not fueled by emotion alone. The players, head coach Mark Briggs said last night, have shown great togetherness and quality in critical moments. The guys are comfortable when they're uncomfortable. That's what gets us through these games. Sac Republic goalkeeper Danny Vitiello was one of those guys fending off numerous shots all night. His diving block of a KC penalty kick was a huge and, he says, lucky moment that set up Lopez's heroics. Penalties are a lottery. You know, you got to die the right way. So far, Sac Republic has done everything the right way, showing the soccer world the men's game in this country is thriving, not just at the highest levels. On September 7th, Sac Republic plays MLS team Orlando City for the U.S. Open Cup title. Sacramento is the first lower division team to get to the final since 2008, with a chance to become the first non-MLS champion since 1999. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Sacramento. It's all things considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, climate change is expected to make storm surge worse in coastal areas. But developers keep building in places that may be underwater someday. You'll hear about the vulnerable areas of New York City that are booming with development. Business News is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at ICABoston.org. And the Elliott Hotel in Boston's Back Bay. Deluxe accommodations and kid-friendly personalized service where families can relax in one- and two-bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com. In business news, workers at a Trader Joe's in Hadley in western Massachusetts have made history. They voted 45 to 31 to unionize. It's the first location in the grocery chain to do so. On Wall Street, stocks rallied for a second day. The Dow picked up a full percent, or 332 points. The S&P rose nearly one and a quarter percent, and the Nasdaq gained more than one percent. There's more business news on Marketplace at 630. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research, manufacturing, and development at vrtx.com. And Boston Landmarks Orchestra, performing a free concert, including Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, on Saturday, August 6th, 7 p.m. at the DCR Hatch Shell. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 
In the forecast, muggy tonight with on and off rain and thunderstorms approaching in the next few hours. Tomorrow, sunny skies in the upper 80s. Right now, we have 85 degrees in Boston. In sports, the Red Sox host the Cleveland Guardians tonight beginning at 710. It's the final game in their four-game series. The time is 6.20. This is 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As climate change warms the planet, drives up sea levels, and energizes hurricanes, a big concern is storm surge. NPR has analyzed modeling from the National Hurricane Center for Miami, Washington, D.C., and New York City. The modeling shows that development continues in places that will be underwater in future storms, putting hundreds of thousands of people at risk. In New York, WN NYC's Jacqueline Jeffrey Walensky and Rosemary Mizderi report from different sides of the East River. I'm Jacqueline Jeffrey Walensky, and we're at the Washington Houses in Harlem, which are a sea of green. Lush grass and tall shade trees fill the campus of this New York City Housing Authority development. And there are garden beds everywhere. Eventually, we're going to have an apple and peach orchard. Claudia Perez, president of the Residents Association, says her neighbors spend hours each week tending the flowers and vegetables. And they've got more planned, too. We have lots of rose bushes. We have lots of gardening that happens here. And it makes it more beautiful. Actually, sometimes I don't even go on the street. I stay here, which is bad. But 10 years ago, during Hurricane Sandy, Perez saw the streets turn into rivers around her home. She watched as the storm hit the local hospital and two other public housing developments nearby. Sandy was really scary. When you see a hospital going underwater, you're like, oh my God, like, what's going on here? Perez's complex escaped Sandy. But with another few decades of sea level rise, a similar storm could bring floodwaters right to its doors. A WMYC NPR analysis of exclusive data from the National Hurricane Center shows that a Sandy-like storm could flood more than 50 NYCHA developments by 2080. That's nearly 50% more than were inundated by the original superstorm in 2012. Nationally, another estimate projects three times as many low-income homes at risk of frequent flooding by 2050. Bernice Rosenzweig is a professor of environmental studies at Sarah Lawrence College. People that live in affordable housing are more exposed to flooding, and they have the fewest resources for dealing with the increased flood risk. Rising seas threaten low-income housing up and down the coasts. But in a city with an affordable housing crisis, low-income New Yorkers can't lose any more housing options, particularly when they're already more vulnerable to the effects of climate change. People that did not in any way profit from the emission of heat-trapping gases are going to end up having to either leave their homes, or someone is going to have to provide funding to make their homes more resilient to flooding. The New York City Housing Authority spent nearly two and a half billion dollars to repair and upgrade public housing hit hardest by Hurricane Sandy. In East Harlem, damaged buildings are using FEMA money for backup generators, new roofs, and elevated electrical systems. But there are still many more that need to be climate ready, like the Washington houses. The Housing Authority, which receives about 60% of its funding from the federal government, says it will have to look for other ways to pay for the upgrades. The experience of Sandy prompted Perez to create an emergency plan for the Washington houses. 
She even helped write a bilingual illustrated pocket guide called Washington Houses Ready. I think this is important. Preparing for evacuation, which is on the first page. East Harlem is a neighborhood where a hurricane could cause severe flooding. In most emergencies where life is in danger, the first thing to do is call 911. But local advocates like Chris Dobins at the nonprofit We Act for Environmental Justice want the city to do more, like elevate the local waterfront. Otherwise, he says, it'll just get destroyed again by the next Hurricane Sandy. If we get hit by another superstorm and it happens to uh, coincide with the tides in the East River, East Harlem's going to get nailed and they're going to have to redo all the cosmetic work that they did. If they don't elevate it, I mean, it's going to waltz right in. Across the East River, upscale neighborhoods are also at risk. I'm Rosemary Mizdari in Brooklyn where the blue door for the El Pinguino Oyster Bar sits a few steps from the luxury tower-studded skyline of the East River. Owner Nicholas Padilla has been running a restaurant on this patch of the Brooklyn waterfront for more than a decade. And he has come to dread the rain. Water penetrates everything. It gets into every crevice. And even when it doesn't rain, the floodwaters seem to be waiting. It just seems crazy, right? We dug six inches underground in the basement and there was standing water. <laughs> but Padilla has no plans to leave. It's New York City, it's so hard to find somewhere to go. It just feels like people will just live here until it's in the river. Greenpoint and neighboring Williamsburg are among several waterfront areas in New York City that face severe threats from storm surge and sea level rise. At the same time, they're booming with development. The local community board estimates 20 towers are in the works, between 30 and 40 stories each, with median home prices over a million dollars. The lure of seeing the Manhattan skyline across the river and lavish amenities come with shortfalls for residents, according to local city council member Lincoln Ressler. Our area has grown in population and had more new housing built than any other part of New York City over the last 15 years, but we have not seen enough investment in strengthening our shorelines and realizing a more resilient waterfront. But major infrastructure projects like giant seawalls may be no match for keeping the East River at bay during a downpour. Over the next 30 years, tide and storm surges will increase further inland. That means flooding will happen 10 times as often. Many climate experts argue a much more drastic measure is needed. They say homes and businesses in these parts of the city will have to be abandoned, a process known as managed retreat. Dr. Klaus Jacob is a geophysicist at Columbia University's climate school. Engineering solutions have time limits. They work for a while in some places longer than others, but eventually the ocean will win. In a managed retreat, Jacob says the government buys out property in flood zones. The deserted areas serve as natural barriers against storm surges, protecting structures further inland. This was successfully done on Staten Island after Sandy. When the ocean comes, they don't care how long you have lived or whether your grandparents have lived there. To be clear, some climate experts believe that retreat should be a last resort. They say future technology and engineering solutions could help keep these communities safely intact. But even at this stage in the climate crisis, New York City doesn't have a master plan for climate resiliency. Municipal leaders say they're waiting to draft their strategy based on a report from the Army Corps of Engineers. 
This study will determine the feasibility of large-scale infrastructure such as seawalls for the more than 500 miles of urban coastline, but the final report has been delayed for years due to lack of federal funding. It's now scheduled to be released within the next two years. For NPR News, I'm Rosemary Mizderi. And I'm Jacqueline Jeffrey Walensky in New York. The rise of the super transmissible BA5 subvariant means there is a lot of COVID going around right now. So the federal government started planning to offer a second booster shot to adults under 50. But the Biden administration may scrap those plans to speed up availability of a booster shot that would target BA5 this fall. And some experts want to know, why not both? That and other COVID questions in today's episode of our daily news podcast. It's called Consider This. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston, lacuchara.com. The New Bedford Whaling Museum, Art, History, Science, and Culture Museum. Come experience the spirit of the South Coast. Visit whalingmuseum.org to learn more. And Back Bay Life Science Advisors, strategy consulting and investment banking services for global life science companies. BBLSA.com.